Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Dara here. All right. We got so much going on this hour. Are you a homebody like me? Well, I want to hear from you. I've got multiple questions. First of all, you know, I always want to hear what you're cooking. I've already got a pork pabil call in. Somebody's making a fancy crock pot pork tomorrow. I I approve that message. That is a delicious thing to do on a Sunday. But here, check it out. We're doing a crossover radio show today. I've got Chris and Andy here from the Real Estate Hour. If you heard me bloviating last hour, I had some things to say about restaurants. A lot of people are on my Facebook right now, Dara.Grumdahl, talking about restaurants as a deal maker slash deal breaker when you bought your house. A lot of people, I've now got people saying that they looked at neighborhoods, uh, hate to do this to you, in a diner, no good coffee, mm. deal breaker. They went to- uh, or, or opportunity, right? Or opportunity for, yeah, you need a coffee, you want to open a coffee shop. Uh, and then they ended up near one of the very lovely third wave elite coffee places, uh, Spy House. So I'm not going to try to guess where they live, but I'm pretty much, I know, I think in my head. So- Way in about this whole restaurant thing. I could talk about this forever. And we're going to talk kitchens. That's the other big one. What about a kitchen is a deal maker, deal breaker for you? I got my text window open, 81807. Here's what some people have already said. All right. So one of the the first big things that I heard from people was would not buy a house that wasn't large enough for the whole family to cook together in the kitchen and hang out in the kitchen. Everything else can be dealt with. Well, I totally get that. You need, yeah. you know, like I, I grew up in New York City and those tiny little apartments where you kind of have to go in sideways or the kitchens where you kind of go in sideways and slide in and slide out. I would never buy a house like that. I couldn't take it. Do you hear that? Do people, you know, just have the basic like family in the kitchen has to happen. A hundred percent. Yeah. I think that that's why we've found that a lot of new construction, even though it pulls some people out of the, you know, the city proper, you, you build the house with the kitchen or you build the house around the kitchen. That that's very common for us where we design the whole kitchen for enough seating for, you know, if they want double ovens or, you know, like Chris would want the six foot hibachi grill in the middle of the Island Absolutely. or whatever you but want. I'll tell you what, I mean, next to location, I think kitchen is number one. You know, unless yeah. someone people have specific needs and they need a rambler main floor bedroom and stuff like that, but I mean, the kitchen is is the money maker really mm-hmm. when it comes to resale. Oh, interesting. So it's just like a house is kind of a a big thing around a kitchen. <laughs> it's the heart, yeah, true, truly the heart of the home. I think <laughs> it is for me. I I uh, have one of those big old Victorians, right? And so it's that Victorian Foursquare, and you can kind of ring ring around it. And my kitchen is big enough to have everybody in it, but I remember. That particular bunch of years when my kids were toddlers and I couldn't see them and cook at the same time and they'd be like heading off in that direction to go up a staircase and heading off and I wanted an open plan kitchen like nobody's business 
And now that they're bigger, it doesn't matter again. But yeah. there was like two years there where I like well, it was driving me nuts. What would you say, Chris, with that? I mean, I, I would say that our main floor, like a lot of people will say it's a main floor office or formal dining. That flexible space, I see more toy setups for young ones on the main level where mom and dad can keep an eye or what, you know, on the kids when they're cooking or when they're on the main level of the house. And it keeps them out of trouble or at least in shouting distance. And it's uh, probably one of the more popular options I see right alongside the kitchen. For sure. You know, Andy and I both represent builders. And uh, one of the things that we're doing, I mean, and, and it's just a fact. And if you think about it, where that's where not only the cooking handles, but where the company congregates as well mm-hmm. is in that kitchen. So having a big kitchen, an open kitchen, I think is uh, uh, as far as resale is a real good thing. But we're also starting to put in those those extra amenities, like rather than having a bar downstairs, you know, that you incorporate that within the kitchen and have this huge center island. And that because that's where everyone congregates. Um, here's here's got one who said that. Uh, his criteria for a kitchen only needs to fit two people in the whole thing. Then he's good. Well, is that then a bargain strategy? Like if you can if you can get by without a kitchen, because that's a that's a thing I grew up with in New York City. Also, people that just use the stove as like a place to store extra books. You know, It'd be easier to keep your secrets if nobody's with you when you're cooking. I guess. But, uh... <laughs> what did you do? I mean, would you just eat out all the time, or, or well, those kind of these were typical. Not or? my house, my own house. You know, we had a very big kitchen with an attached. Uh, space for a table. Why does that sound, when I say it like that, it sounds really exotic. We had what everyone has in the Midwest, but we had it in New York because those are my mom's values. You know, she always wanted to be cooking and keep an eye on everybody. So we had that. But uh, I had so many, you know, I knew so many people that grew up in these tiny New York City apartments. And then, yeah, that's exactly what they did. They go out all the time. And that's a conversation I have with restaurant people in town mm-hmm. that always are moaning. They're like, why can't we have as many restaurants in New York? It's like, well, because you can't – people go out there all the time because they have outsourced two rooms of their house. They don't have a dining room and a kitchen. Right. Well, or, or the other concept of that is with the groceries. They go buy what they need for that day because they don't have a lot of extra storage. Yes. Nowadays, some of the, the bigger homes that I'm building, the two-stories – We'll have gigantic pantries, and we jokingly call them the Sam's Club or the Costco pantries because the buying in bulk and you have, you know, all the – you need that storage space. Or that we were talking about the person up farther north. They need something like that because that's their lifestyle. They need to stock up a little bit and then, you know, actually store the stuff versus going out and buying fresh every day, which you can do like here in the city. Oh, that is interesting, the Costco lifestyle. I've also got some people on my uh, Facebook page talking about – are you familiar about the importance about at access to grocery stores? Is it walkable to a grocery store? I mean, that's huge to me. I, mm-hmm. you know, uh, but I've got people talking about Speedy Market. Are you familiar with Speedy Market in St. Anthony? So it's up on Como off 280. It is just this terrific little, it looks like a convenience store from the outside, but it's got, you know, fresh vegetables and all this food inside. And, if you live in that lovely little pocket of St. Anthony, you your kids are walking down to Speedy Market to get you a pound of butter. They're walking down to Speedy Market to get out of your hair and buy themselves a Popsicle. Yeah. Like, it's a Speedy Market lifestyle, and it's awesome. I think, too, I, when you say those things are close by, even if it's not walking, I think some people think, oh, walking, I'm going to carry all these groceries back, or if you only do a little, but it's I think it's it's even more that hey I'm just driving right past it and it's super convenient like stop there and then go park and I think obviously all of that kind of stuff definitely helps 
Well, or even somebody. if you're eliminating your car and you've got the cool scooters and bikes and, you know, bike shares and all these other cool resources that are there, but it's easy to get to. I think it's the key thing. You don't have to have all the resources of a car and everything else, too. But I, I think the cool thing is, is the idea that every day, you know, you go in there and let's say there's a variety of things that are at that location mm-hmm. and it's different, forces you to be creative with your, your uh, menu as well. I mean, you're not just sitting there making the same old, like we say, that same stuff from the Costco pantry because you feel like you got to use it all. And uh, again, different lifestyle. And then that stuff, I got to put in a plug for home cooking, not always the healthiest. You know, those processed flours. I I know someone who's been battling their weight for a long time and also buys those um, uh, graham cracker, like Teddy Graham buckets that are the size of a bathtub. And I don't want to (laughs) be judgmental, but it's like, you know, at the time that you have a keg of Teddy Grahams, like you're not making great choices. You know, we all have problems with willpower during the day and at the point that you're just you know got a gallon of teddy grams to put in your mouth like what are you doing well, like, who, who can eat the proper amount of goldfish you know those little oh, gold salty little seriously. things seriously after your fifth handful you go okay i better put them back you know i mean it's like so you just keep the temptation away i guess i don't know yeah and then you know costco works against that because you can't buy like a reasonable amount of teddy grams you could only buy you know enough to feed the community. All right. So (laughs) I've got uh, the question I have for you guys about kitchens is this, like, what about the fancy bells and whistles? You know, like, do you have customers that are in or out because of the famous wolf range or the backyard? Uh, I've been to some home and garden shows where they have the whole backyard cooking station and I do get a little bit weak need. It's like, oh, what would that be like? But, uh, you know, is that a thing? Uh, definitely, based on price point. I mean, the whole wolf appliances and things like that. It's 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 kind of expected. And if you don't have that, it's it's a it's a definite knock on that house, and well, people remember it because yeah. so many of the other ones do have it. Well, yeah, and you, you, Chris, I'm sure you've had the same customers I have, where they're if you're truly dialed in on your temperatures, for example, like an appliance that. I think the – I don't know what the association that regulates appliances, but let's say that they can have a swing of 10% on each side of a temperature. So you say, I wonder why I burn my cookies and you don't burn your cookies. Well, with like a product like Wolf where it's dialed in within one degree of the actual real temperature, there are chefs that are out there that will say, I need that or I want that so that I can perform at a certain, you know, whatever. So or I think they can become a cook someday. Like me, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. I, yeah just buy the, uh, the expensive appliances and then it will work out for me, I hope. But no, but the idea there is that there are people that actually are dialed into that. Or, for an example, I've had people that say, I can't fit a birthday cake in this refrigerator. I need a bigger refrigerator than this. I've had the unusual comments that we've picked up over the years of buyers, the things that they're looking for, convenience, and how they live their lifestyle and how they shop and how they buy it, it, it really varies. And I think, Dara, too, that um, a big thing is, is the smaller the kitchen, the more of those little amenities and, you know, the, the drawer dishwashers and, you know, all the little um, – drawer refrigerators and things like that. I think that makes a huge difference and it over it they start justifying it. Well, we have this and this. I mean, we don't need that huge center island kind of thing. Right. Yeah, sure. exactly. Oh, uh, it's interesting stuff cuz I I really like, of course, all those kind of bells and whistles. I was telling you about my friend who 
they basically, you know, took out a home equity loan and put it put a put an extra room on their house because they had this wonderful pizza oven in the backyard that they were that the husband had built and they refused to leave it and it's a beautiful thing and they have great pizza. But uh, you know, it's uh it's interesting. I mean, I do know some Chinese uh chefs who, you know, in their professional kitchen, they have to get a different kind of stove that has a massive, you know, fire one fire that's huge for the wok. And I know that people do have those in their homes. Um, so it's it's interesting to think about how much I'm going to live on the idea that you said that the kitchen is the most important room in the house for the rest of my life. I'm going to be quoting you on that. I love that so much. Um, and so, but you feel like it almost is like the per. It sounds almost like a dating thing. Like the person has to match the house. Big time. And you you said it right when you came on our show and you talked about lifestyle, and that is so true. And I mean, and I think the kitchen is all part of that right. as well. You know, because if you are. Um, you know, nowadays we're talking is that, you know, women are working more. I mean, the the roles are somewhat reversing and who's doing the kitchen. I mean, yep. I'm kind of the uh, chef whenever I get home um, to be able to cook. But uh, I think also when you're talking about, you know, um, with the, the big burner and stuff like that, it's so important from a sales perspective to be able to explain that. Because I think if someone sees that and they don't really know what it's about, if you can explain that, then they can think, oh, my gosh, yeah, I've always wanted to be able to do that. And right. that might kind of move your house up on the – I mean on the the money meter as well. Well, and I would say this too. You know, when it comes right really down to it, as, as a real estate agent in general, when you're meeting your real estate agent, they need to interview you because they're the ones looking for your interests and what your lifestyle is. And they can help you save time and lots of energy and money – by dialing you into what you really need as a family or as an individual. And so the, the, I would say be interviewed on the front end or don't be afraid to be interviewed about how do you cook? How do you shop? How, you know, what are your expectations for being close to your job? Do you want to have one car? Do you want to have five cars? You know, those are the things that when you're, when you're shopping for that home, remember what and how you're going to use it and I think and make sure that the agent knows it. Oh, I bet that that happens where people don't even know what their lifestyle or what their priorities are. They just show up and they're like, I want a house. And then they don't realize that – a house for them is a place where they can do homebrew projects. Right. The Instagram lifestyle buyer, right? That they think this is what I think I need because this is what everybody else has. And it's like, sit down and really look at what you have and what you're looking for and makes it a lot easier for everybody and enjoyable. Oh, because I do know a lot of chefs in town and brewers in town and people who made serious modifications to their actual house for the stuff they love to do. I'm thinking of these people that opened a brewery that had uh, put a cut a hole under the sink to lead up flexible pipe downstairs so they could brew they could boil food things upstairs and dump them through the floor into the homebrew setup in the basement awesome. i mean that's uh you know that's a special house not everybody uses that 220 in the garage for welding a lot of times that's for deep fryers that's for i mean the smaller catering families that'll make egg rolls or whatever i've had a couple families i've done that for where they have their own in-home catering and that's what they were doing in their garages. And so they put in big ventilation systems. And oh, really? I don't know. I don't know if I should give the address, but it's the uh, – but, it, yeah, I've had that happen before. So, yeah. And you were saying off air that uh, you know a chef. I don't know if we should say his name, but he was using – he had a, a full professional R&D kitchen. Absolutely. In his house to do stuff. Yeah, well, and it, it replicates what they're doing in their restaurants. And so we actually – the house was designed with that so that it's just like at the actual restaurant – and so they were making larger quantities of, you know, things and, yeah. I bet the resale value of that is through the roof. I would love to pull, full professional 
kitchen with the washable walls and floor drains. Ugh. A yeah, fantasy life. Of- <laughs> we just want to eat the samples, Chris and I. So we uh, sit There's outside a tasting the window. We're sitting outside right the window waiting yeah. for the samples. <laughs> oh, this is really fun. We should do this more with um, our Teddy Grams, right? <laughs> so we got a we got a question about the the open to the living room. Is that important for resale value? The kitchen to, when people can see it. Is it? I think it is. It just makes the house look bigger. But I'll tell you what, I mean, and, and my wife is very famous for this, of starting the dishwasher right when I sit down to watch, you know, a show. And then I wish that that kitchen was off in a corner all by itself. But yeah. I think for the most part, I mean, I think, you, I mean, it's where you all gather and well, have an open. Again, lifestyle. Better. Do you want to keep a clean kitchen all the time? Or if you occasionally want to leave a few dishes in there and you want everybody to see your dirty business, you know, I mean, so it really depends on the individual again. I'd say I like open. I think open sells more right now. Again, it it's kind of the hot thing. But when you have a sink on the island in the center of a house that's wide open, you don't really have very many dishes that can sit very long without uh, being attended to, you know. I was in a house and uh, that had the big open plan, and then it didn't have much furniture, and then it had this sort of feeling of like a convention center somehow. Like it didn't feel <laughs> like a home, and I don't know if that's an open plan thing or just one people's decorating choice, but I remember looking around and being like, that's odd. I feel, I feel like I'm in a house. Yeah. That does. I mean, and, and the staging part of it is really important, like how you're going to use it. But, yeah, if you think it's a, a convention center, you know, that that's not going to be very homey. And that can be your flooring, too. I mean, just like, for example, you take out the carpet in the great room and now it has hardwood through the whole main floor, which on paper looks good. But now all the sounds bounce. So whoever's watching TV, everybody in the whole house gets to hear it. Or if you're having a conversation, again, that gets shared with everybody. So. You know, sometimes the flooring materials can make a difference. And oh, then... we actually have a question like that on the text line, 81807, which is somebody is connecting their dining room and their kitchen, and they're asking you guys for flooring advice. Yeah. I hadn't thought about the, the bouncy sound. I have a wood floor in my kitchen, but it's a Victorian, you know, house, so there's not a, you know, we don't have enough space to really create echoes. But what do you think? What's a good flooring if you're uniting two rooms and one's the kitchen? The same. Whatever the same is, just because it it'll just flow bigger, it'll 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 feel bigger. I mean, well, obviously. we've had some families that want wood, and then I've had some families that want the look of wood, but they have big dogs, for example, so they'll do like the wood looking tile, and they'll carry that through, and it looks like a wood floor, but it, it will last a million years and not have to be. But touched. if you're saying resale, I mean, strictly resale, and we had to tell someone today, what flooring would you put in your kitchen in that next dining room? I do a I nice hand scraped wood, ninety five percent of the nice time. Nice fun color. Yeah. Yeah, I like when you can drop a mason jar and it bounces. So that's my <laughs> that's my criteria. All right, you guys, this has been so much fun. Thank, Thank you, you for coming on and Thank talking. You. Uh, follow Chris and Andy and listen to the real estate show. And oh, we'll do this again. This was a hot topic. I can't believe uh, how much people chimed in. I love kitchens. This is fun stuff. Thank you. Thanks, Tara. All right, we come back. We're going to talk about hazelnuts. Is it time to turn... You know, much of Minnesota into hazelnut country? I say yes, and we've got a guy who's going to try to sell you. If you're a farmer, I'm putting hazelnuts on your land when we come back. Dara here. All right, here's what I want to talk to you about. I'm going to make a hard sell this hour for hazelnuts. Hazelnuts, right? What are they? There's a little round nut, and they sometimes get called filberts. You go to Oregon, they're everywhere. They're at every farmer's market. Um, And there's something launching today called the Million Hazelnut Campaign, and this is about making hazelnut agriculture a thing in Minnesota. 
I think it's super cool. I've got Chris Gamer on the line from the Hazelnut Conference. He has launched this initiative. Chris, welcome to the show. Welcome this morning. It's good to hear your voice, Dara. Oh, good it's to good to hear yours. All right, tell people uh, why hazelnuts. I've got one uh, text in from a reader or listener, and she said that she used to go all through the countryside with her family looking for hazelnut trees in hazelnut season. So they actually used to grow here. Oh, yeah, they're indigenous to Minnesota and northern Wisconsin. In fact, uh, um, rootstock that they've used for their selective breeding program to get them to where they are today, where it becomes commercially viable, were co- plants collected from Minnesota and Wisconsin. All right, so well, there's, a, there's a hybrid that you're talking about. So this is not the, yep. the hazelnut that people knew from the roadside 50 years ago. There's a, they took that rootstock, they've hybridized it, there's a better hazelnut. Yep, it's a controlled cross that they've been working on since the 1900s, and the results are great. We're in a position now. I've been listening to the results here today. They've been working on both the selective breeding process and clonal propagation, and we're in a place to really move into this market and compete with the Turkish and the people out in Oregon and have a meaningful impact on our economy by building a new one here. Okay, and so if people... You know, so I've got a lot of listeners who have farms. They're in, they're in Minnesota, Wisconsin, the Dakotas, uh, Iowa. Explain why a farmer would want some hazelnut land. To diversify their income, for one thing. The other thing that it really does is if you have a waterway, planting hazelnuts will cause water infiltration and stop your erosion. It'll pick up any nitrogen that's going to run off, so we're protecting the Gulf of Mexico all while providing yourself with a secondary income stream. You know, the hazelnut profile actually is a perfect replacement plant for the soybean that actually has a broader market. And what I mean when I say that is that it has a 60% oil content and a 15% protein content. So you could use it to replace any of the soybean oils and anywhere that goes, and you could use it as a ration in your feed mix. That's before it gets to the part where over and over and over again in all of the studies, people prefer the flavor of the Midwest hazelnut over the stuff from Turkey or over the stuff from Oregon. So let's just say I've, you know, a lot of farmers are looking at some of these new nitrogen standards and kind of wondering how they're going to handle that. So here's how it works, right? You plant a hazelnut. It stays where it is, right? It's, it's, it's permaculture. It goes in once. It grows big. Oh. And then you just get a hazelnut crop for the next couple hundred years? Is that how that roughly works? Well, the way that we've been doing it so far is you go about 30, 35, maybe 40 years, and then you coppice it or cut it down, and then the new growth will set fruit again. So the roots do all this work. The roots go into the ground. They stop the erosion. They intercept the nitrogen. They do all those things. The main thing... The thing that really got me into this is carbon sequestration, and that's the thing that they really excel at. Once you keep the soil covered by having a perennial tree on it, we can take the carbon out of the atmosphere and put it back into the ground where it's building a carbon-rich soil, which is what your plants need to grow. It also works great for erosion control if your field has any slope on it. We like to plant on contour on that slope so that it stops erosion from moving across your field. Another good place is around your waterways. It does the same thing, just stops the soil from moving into that waterway and getting flushed out into the rivers and streams. Okay, so what's going on today, you're at this conference, 
You launched the Million Hazelnuts campaign, and that's at millionhazelnuts.com. Uh, dot right? com. And, it's just not dot com. It's not plural. Millionhazelnut.com. Oh, singular. Millionhazelnut.com. And then I've got a link to it at mspmag.com if you just are used to going there. Uh, under the, the article is titled, Is It Time for a Million Hazelnuts? And that's your that's what you're doing, a million hazelnuts. How much? Well, I'm, I'm actually, Dara, I'm trying to do a million hazelnuts in the 12 upper Midwestern states. Tell me about that. Uh, oh, so each well, of them. Each, a million for each state. If we can get the funds raised. The problem with, you know, converting to a perennial crop is the large upfront installation costs. So I coupled with, I'm a, I'm a, I'm, I'm a member of the Sustainable Farming Association's Driftless chapter, mm-hmm. and I went to the Main Street Project and asked them for their help in launching this. And basically what we're doing is getting concerned citizens to make a $7 sponsorship so that we can put a seed into a nursery, and then when that seed matures and is ready, we move it out into a broad acre planting of at least 1,000 plants per planting so that it's worth to come back to with the mechanical harvester and give that to the farmer so that they don't have that three or four thousand dollar an acre upfront cost. And so, so it's a, you're looking for people to donate at millionhazelnut.com. You're also looking for farmers who want to hear more about this, right? Yes. Uh, if you come and register your land, if you're curious about it, register your land on our website and I'll get a hold of you and see what it is that you want to do. Do you want to do buffer strips? Do you want to do erosion control strips? Do you want to do a broad acre planting? One of the reasons why I went to Main Street Project is because they're working on this chicken-centered agriculture that is about moving the chickens back out onto the land and creating a a tree-range chicken rather than free-range because the birds are more comfortable with an overstory tree over them it's a, amazing to me to learn, and I learned it from the Main Street Project people and Ronaldo Maraquin doing the work there. It's a jungle animal. It likes to live in a forest. And so this is a perfect plant if you want to do broad acre plantings or silver pasture. It's a perfect plant for that. It also works good with sheep or with hogs or with cows if you want to graze them through a hazelnut stand. Oh, I was looking in Oregon. There is a market, a premium hog market for hazelnut, <laughs> hazelnut-fed hogs. I am very excited about that. Um, so tell me. There's, there's some places it's hard to get those hams because there's not enough of them available. Well, they sound, I mean, they just sound very delicious. In Spain, they mm-hmm. feed them on acorns, and that's not uh, not too far from a, from a hazelnut. But so people don't know. The technology for getting hazelnuts out of the trees, like it's leaps and bounds ahead. You don't need a guy out there plucking each hazelnut. You There's like a, a modified blueberry picker now? Oh, there's quite an array of technology. That was one of the things that they covered at the conference here yesterday is the different kinds of pickers. There's the U-shaped pickers that drive over the top of them. Um, there's amended blueberry pickers. There's amended erroneous pickers. There's amended olive tree pickers. That all work just fine the way that they are. The um, product in Turkey actually drove an Italian market in manufacturing the specialty harvesting equipment. So it's readily available. It's not that big of a deal. One of the things, too, that we're trying to focus on in the Million Hazelnut campaign is getting enough of these thousand planter cluster planting, thousand plant plantings close enough together 
so that you could have joint ownership over a machine. Now, there's a limit to how much you can do that because you have to uh, share the harvester during the harvest time, and they do come mature at you know, a similar time in the fall. You have like a two-week window of opportunity to harvest. So I was, you know, you told me about this, and I was looking around. There's one hazelnut processor in the region so far. It's down in the Driftless area, not not too far from Viroqua, and it's called the Million. I mean, it's called the American Hazelnut Company, right? Yep, and they'll pay you a buck fifty a pound for in-shell nuts right now to limit your the amount of processing that you have to do. And there are products that they're selling. They're really, really liking the oil is the main thing that they're selling, and it's proven to be really popular in the local market. Yeah, it's great on salads. I have spent my own money on hazelnut oil from Italy, and it's just a, a it's got a nice flavor to it. It kind of does that thing for salad that you want where it elevates it but doesn't drown it. Um, it's, it's a really nice oil. So, so down by Viroqua, you've got this American hazelnut company, and if we actually manage to get this million hazelnut campaign going off the ground, like that will just be a local product, right? We'll just have hazelnuts at the farmer's market. Yep, it'll just be there everywhere. But, you know, one of the other concerns I have, Dara, is with climate change and uh, the impact that it's going to have on our ag- annual agriculture. If we have perennials propagated out on the land, that are sequestering carbon while they're making food available without the intensive energy inputs of animal ag- or annual agriculture, we're really doing ourselves a favor in this food security front. So it's a high-quality food that we can produce locally that tastes great, that is wonderful for finishing animal products to have a really flavorful meat product. It's just a great opportunity. I'm really excited about it. And here at the UMHDI, the Upper Midwest Hazelnut Development Initiatives Conference this year, there's so much support for this. There's a lot of work that's getting done that's making this all possible. It's really, I'm excited to be a part of it. I am I am excited you're doing this. I'm grateful. You know, I will say that a lot of people are going to be hearing this and their first instinct is going to be, this is soybean country. We have to stay that way. But Here's what a fact that I have for you. I happened to get a copy of a National Geographic magazine from, I think it was 1948 or so, and it was a big profile in Minnesota, and I, I, I was re- using it as research for another project. But throughout, it was talking about Minnesota agriculture, and it kept saying, there's this new bean. They call it the Asian bean. Like, it's the idea that, you know, soybeans had to be sold to Minnesota farmers at one point. And yeah, that was maybe 50, 60 years ago. But there's no reason a new crop can't be part of it. In the same way our you know, grandparents said, oh, soybeans, that's a good, that's going to be a moneymaker. This might be the moment, the hinge in time where we have to say, oh, hazelnuts, that's going to be a thing. You know, the interesting thing about the time period you're talking about it, the soybeans were struggling at the beginning of their uh, advent into Minnesota, but then they really took off as an animal feed. And soybeans are, are in a position, especially with the upfront help of the Million uh, Hazelnut Campaign to reduce input costs for the farmer, we're in a position where we could replace soybeans in rations for animals. We really are. It, that's why it's so exciting. That's the same thing that made the soybean take off in the 50s, was when they started using it for animal feed. 
Oh, that is just fascinating. All right, I want everyone who can who can <laughs> get in on this million hazelnut campaign. I think it's going to be I really want our soil to stay where it is. I want farmers to stop having to spend so much money on nitrogen fertilizers and pesticides. I want uh, you know, it seems like a great thing for the birds and and every other critter on the pollinators. All right, Chris Gamer, thank you for coming on today. Thank you very much. And please, I'm I'm going to need 1,200 acres for every million hazelnuts. So ro- enroll your farm in my program. If you can hear me, millionhazelnut.com. All right. I'm going to repeat that all hour. And uh, thank you, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Enjoy the day. Oh, thanks. All right, we come back. We're going to get through these Crock-Pot recipes. I will answer any questions you have, 81807. But uh, what we've been talking about is hazelnuts. Some people call them filbert. Only see them in a daiquiri, but I'm all about hazelnuts right now. This uh, fundraising website where you can also register your farm is millionhazelnut.com. And I'll be back with a Crock-Pot pasta. (laughs) All right, so... We're going to get through these crockpot pastas. I got a request from a listener who wanted to – I've got a picky eater. That's a tough thing. People always blame the parents of the picky eater. That's not fair. They just Some kids are just very picky. Anyway, they want to make some pastas with this child because they like – this child likes pasta. And they want to do it in a crockpot. They want it to be kind of a kid-led thing. They want some ideas for crockpot pastas, children – That's what's up at WCCORadio.com right now. All right, my number one first in the list, maybe not the number one, but you know what I mean. No boil mac and cheese. So you can do this. You can just kind of throw dry macaroni and milk and some other things in the crock pot, but you do have to stir it a few times. Like you can't just, it's not like a pot roast where you throw it in and leave the house for six hours. But if you you are around and you can stir it a few times, it, it works really well. Kids love it. All right, I've got a real, it's kind of fancy, baked ziti with different vegetables kind of put in there. And if you have a a food processor and you uh, shred the vegetables, kids love pushing that button. That's a fun thing. So that's a nice slow cooker pasta bake. That's up at WCCORadio.com. I've got a Parmesan herb chicken and orzo. So this is nice to kind of chicken thighs, get a nice sear on them and make a kind of pesto-y broth and throw Orzo in, that's that pasta that's tiny, looks like rice, works out well. I had to put a slow cooker chili mac in there. Come on, I love, I'm an American, I like a chili mac. So that's, of course, you make the chili, then you dump some pasta in there. I don't know if your kid is going to go there. If you've got a really picky eater, chili might be a step too far, but maybe not. All right, how about slow cooker lasagna? Every generation figures out how to make lasagna without boiling the noodles, and we everybody loves it. Every generation loves it for a different reason. Building a lasagna in a slow cooker is so satisfying because you have to make the, everything fit. You know, you break the noodles. You make it like a mosaic. It's good. I got a link to that. And the last recipe, you know I had to put one for grown-ups up there. So it's a, a pork and sausage meatballs cooked in sauce. This is my favorite. I have, I'm sorry, people, I like a meatball cooked in sauce more than a fried meatball at this point in my life. But this is a great recipe. You've got, uh, you know, just a little pork. You've got some sausage in the mix. Very good Sunday project when you got to keep the house warm. All right, so what is happening? 
People have questions about hazelnuts and how they used to see more of them. And that I've got a great text from a listener who used to have a dairy farm with hazelnuts on the dairy pasture. That's what I would like to see. I would like to see hazelnuts sort of everywhere. So go to millionhazelnuts.com. Next week, we've got Pilar, Pilar Gerasimo is going to be on the show. You know Pilar. She started that magazine, the health, uh, healthy, uh, she, let me try again. She's one of my best friends. I can't even do this. She started the magazine Experience Life. She's a healthy living evangelist behind a whole bunch of important stuff like the 101, you know, healthy resolutions. She's got this new book in the pipeline. It's all based around this idea, healthy deviant. The idea is that if you are healthy in this very unhealthy society, you're a deviant. She's been co-hosting that Living Experience podcast. So we're going to talk all the things health and healthy, uh, how to eat, what to do, how to resist peer pressure to um, be a stress ball and miserable. So all those things. And so till then, in this last difficult storm of the winter, may your spirits stay high and your souffles rise even higher. And I will meet you here next week on Off the Menu. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.